Morning, church. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, I don't know if you're really excited about the big game this afternoon. I know I'm really excited. I love football. I'm really excited to see the Seahawks play the Canucks. (laughs) They called it Soggy Saturday. Uh, after high school, I took a year off and I went to Bible school in Australia. And, and on the first day of school, we all arrived on campus. We had dinner together. And then in the evening, they gathered us in the lecture hall and they ran us through kind of orientation. They, they gave us an overview of what was expected and what was going to you know, happen during our, during our time at, at Bible school. And uh, the principal was talking us through it, and he talked us through the semester calendar. He got to the bottom of the calendar. It was like June 9th or something. And he said, and this, of course, is Soggy Saturday. What? It's Soggy Saturday. That's the day that you all are going to leave, and so you'll spend the whole day crying. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and I'm in this room with 60 strangers. You know, I don't know these people. And I'm thinking, no way. No way, you know, maybe, like, maybe another student who doesn't have my strong constitution, uh, maybe they'll be reduced to tears on that final day. But, you know, you, you spend six months with a group of people during a formative time of your life, and, you know, it, it, they start to mean something to you. And so the day came, the day came, and, uh, and that Saturday was quite soggy. We, we, we gathered in the same lecture hall, and they were running, uh, they were running shuttle buses to, um, from the school to the train station, then we'd all take the train into Sydney and go wherever we were going. And, uh, and so we had all gathered with all our luggage and our stuff uh, in the lecture hall waiting for the shuttle buses to run. And everyone was pretty, like, calm and collected. And then, and then it just kind of happened. Like, one person went to hug another person and say goodbye and they started getting emotional. And you know that thing that happens where you see someone getting emotional and it makes you get emotional, right? And so they, they started hugging and they, they started crying and then they went and each of them said goodbye to another person and they started them up. And it was like, I don't know if you've ever watched one of those animations of like an Ebola outbreak where you start with a red dot and like it spreads across the map. It was like watching that in real time. You just saw this wave go across the lecture hall as everyone started just bawling including yours truly. Um, and, uh, and then we actually, about half the student body, like 30 of us, had made a plan that that night we would meet, uh, we would meet in Sydney and, and all have one last meal together. Um, so we were going we to meet at the Hard Rock Cafe in Sydney. They have an upstairs, they have like a balcony where they put large parties. And so we all took our trains and we met up there. So we had already said goodbye, actually, but then we met up again in Sydney we shared a meal, we shared some laughs, took some photos. Uh, they don't do separate checks in Australia, and so we spent like 45 minutes on the bill, okay, for 30 people. And then the time came, and we're like, well, I guess it's time to go. And someone stood up, and of course, they're not just going to walk out. They're, they were like, okay, well, they're not going to walk out. They have to say goodbye to everyone again, and wouldn't you know what, the same thing happened again. It just spread within minutes. Once again, this group of people was all all crying and, you know, saying, oh, I'm going to miss you so much. I'll email all the time, which we didn't. And, and you know, the poor server, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say we were there for two extra hours after dinner just saying goodbye, and this poor server was just trying to clear our table and finish her shift, 
And she's like, what? What happened? What's wrong? Oh, we're saying goodbye. Well, saying goodbye is a hard thing, right? Because especially when it's something like that, like we were all going to different parts of the world. We were, most of us wouldn't see each other again. And so when you get that, that kind of a moment like that where it's final, you know, often we have things that are unsaid in our relationships, we leave them unsaid for a long time, and then you get to that goodbye moment, and you feel like you have to get it all out. Like, like okay, this is my last chance to, to speak into this person's life, to tell them how I really feel, to tell them what, what I want them to know, and, and to express my heart for them. And so it can be, it can be difficult, and it can take a long time. It can, be, it can be emotional at times. That's what we're going to watch unfolding over the next section of our sermon series. And so we're, uh, we're continuing through the Gospel of John, John's biography of Jesus. And Daryl actually told us last week, he pointed out, we're moving into a section of John called the Farewell Discourse, which is exactly what it sounds like. Okay, Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples, and the meal is called the Last Supper. Okay, he's, he's in an upstairs room with his disciples. Okay, not at the Hard Rock. He's in an upstairs room with them, and, uh, and this is his last teaching. It's Thursday night. Friday, he's, he's on the cross. And so we're entering into Jesus' final teaching as he kind of says goodbye to his disciples. Um, and, yeah, and something. So the setting is the Last Supper. They've gathered together. And Jesus is, going to, uh, Jesus is going to start sending them out. And, and John actually gives us something, um, something special here. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the other gospel writers, they each give us like half a page uh, on the farewell discourse. Uh, John, who was there and was kind of a part of the conversation, uh, he gives us four chapters of farewell discourse, of this key teaching moment of Jesus's. And so we're going to... and so. It's four chapters, so we're going to take the next seven weeks to work our way through the farewell discourse, and that's going fast. So it's going to be fun, and it's going to be really helpful. So uh, let's take a look. So he starts out in 14.1, and he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, and trust also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Why? Why would their hearts be troubled? Well, you may remember from last week, Jesus actually has just dropped three bombs on these guys. Okay, the conversation, like the, the evening started out nice. Jesus did this beautiful expression of love. He washed their feet. But then last week, the conversation kind of took a turn. And within a few paragraphs, Jesus dropped three bombs on them. Okay, uh, one of you is going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before morning. And biggest one of all is, and I'm, I'm going away. And you all can't come with me. Three years they've been walking around, 24 hours a day they're with Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm leaving. It's over. You're going to have to figure out what's next. And so Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, because he's looking around at a room full of men. It's 11 men. Judas left. Uh, and they're shocked. They're, they're very troubled. They're, they can't believe what they've been hearing from Jesus. And so Jesus uh, starts out, chapter 14, and starts out the farewell discourse by saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. And really, that's the big idea in the farewell discourse. 
Don't let your hearts be troubled. Okay, he says that here in 1427. He's going to say, don't be troubled or afraid. In 1633, he says, here on earth you will have trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. It, this whole discussion is all going to be Jesus uh, trying to put some steel in their spines and trying to, listen, to prepare them to be followers of Jesus without Jesus physically present with them. He's trying to put some steel in their spines, and he's trying to prepare them to be followers of Jesus without Jesus physically present with them. That's actually really significant, and, and here's why. Uh, for most of the story, the disciples have not been like us. They have not followed Jesus in the way that we follow Jesus because Jesus has been with them. The way that they've followed Jesus for most of the story is they've followed Jesus. He's there. And Jesus is about to give them some teaching and say, okay, here's how you are going to follow me with me physically absent. And so the teaching he's going to give to them is very relevant to us today because that's our situation. We're trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus with Jesus physically absent. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He's preparing them for what's going to come next. And he's going to, over the course of the farewell discourse, he's going to give them uh, some, some reasons to not be afraid. He's going to give some, them some teaching for why they don't need to be troubled or afraid or anxious. And the first, the first thing he teaches them comes to us in verses 2 and 3, where he says, There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be where I am. What's Jesus talking about here? On the one hand, he's picking up an idea that he's already introduced. In 1336, so just before this, uh, Jesus has already said, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. And so, so he's picking up this idea. He says, I'm going to be with the Father. Okay, that's... His father is God, and his father's home is heaven. Okay, I'm going to be with the father for a while. You can't come, but you can come later. So on one hand, Jesus is, is just picking up that idea and explaining that idea a little bit. And if that was all that Jesus was teaching them, that would be good news. Oh, we'll be apart for a while, but we can be together again. That's, that's good. That's reassuring. But as usual, there's another layer of meaning. There's another layer of meaning. And so I hope you're starting to see people keep saying and doing things in the Gospel of John uh, that, that had a very clear meaning in that culture. It's not spelled out in the text because they would have understood it. And we have to kind of reconstruct it today. And this is going to be another one of those times. What Jesus says here means something really specific. Our culture is, is not very traditional anymore. Um, we kind of pride ourselves on not being very traditional. Um, but there are still some areas where, where some kind of old-fashioned traditions persist. One of those is, uh, is around getting engaged. Okay, if you, if you get engaged nowadays in our culture, there are some elements that will probably be part of that proposal and engagement. Okay, it's probably going to be the man who asks, and probably at some point he's going to... Uh, be on one knee holding a ring and he's going to say some nice things about how he loves her and then he's going to say, will you marry me? Hopefully she says yes and then 
he, he puts the ring on her finger, and then they, they've now made an understanding, a promise that they're going to marry each other, uh, and then, you know, they kiss and they tell all their friends and stuff. Now, you may dress it up, right? You dress it up, and so maybe you do like a surprise picnic or, you know, fill a room with candles or uh, you play a cheesy song on acoustic guitar. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe you outdoorsy people, you like do a hike and then do the proposal at the summit because... You know, what is more romantic than sweat and mud and hiking boots? You may dress it up, but those core elements will be part of it, right? There's, there's a tradition around it. Now, in the ancient world, there were traditions around getting engaged as well. I'm going to tell you about them. First of all, you didn't get engaged. You got betrothed, which is, you know, that, that's kind of an old-fashioned word. Uh, you, get, you got betrothed. And Getting betrothed was like getting engaged, but it was a bigger deal. It was more significant, okay? You may remember, we just went through Christmas. So in the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph are betrothed. They're not married. They're betrothed. She becomes pregnant. Joseph knows, I'm not the father. He, he reaches some conclusions and says, I got to break it off. And he doesn't, like, and he, it says, Joseph made a plan to divorce her quietly, they're not married, they're betrothed, but he had to get a divorce. He, he couldn't just, you know, like nowadays, you just, you just talk to them and say, you know, I, I want to break it off. Can I have the ring back? Can you call the caterer and cancel? Back then, you had to actually get a divorce to break off a betrothal. It was a big deal. Now, here's how he got betrothed. Um, there, was, there was kind of a process, a, a set of customs around it. So the groom, everyone lived with their parents, and so the groom would leave his parents' house and go to her parents' house and talk to her father. Uh, and he, he would agree with the father on a bride price, which he would then pay. And yes, that's an ugly patriarchal practice, but that was the custom in that day. He would pay the bride price, and then they would seal the betrothal with, uh, with a toast, essentially. They would pour a glass of wine the groom would hold up the wine, uh, he would speak a betrothal blessing, and then they would drink the, the cup of wine. And that's the, that's the equivalent of putting the ring on, okay? Then they're betrothed, okay? And then the groom would leave. For about a year, they would be apart, okay? They're betrothed, they're committed to each other, but they would live apart, okay? They wouldn't have sex. They would live apart. Now, the groom's job uh, would be to build an addition onto his parents' house, which would eventually be the place that they would live when they were newlyweds. And so families lived together, together multi-generationally, okay? That's not just something we do today while we're saving up our down payments. They did that back then too. He, he would build an addition onto his parents' house for about a year. Her job during this time was just to make sure that she was getting ready for the wedding. And so she's making sure she's got the dress, the bridesmaids, uh, you, you know, the arrangements are in place. She's got, you know, her hair is good and, and everything. Making sure that she's ready for the wedding. Then, eventually, all the uh, preparations would be made. And they, they would sort of agree, okay, we're ready. And the groom, on the wedding day, would, with his groomsmen and, uh, his groomsmen and best men, they would come to her parents' place, and they would come get her, and they would bring her 
to the wedding. They would get married, there would be a huge feast, and then the groom would take her to live with him uh, in, in the, the place that he had built onto his parents' house. Now, some of you maybe are connecting the dots already, but just to underline it, rewind for a second. So the groom pays the bride price, they pour a glass of wine, he holds the glass of wine up, and he speaks the, uh, he speaks the betrothal blessing. Here's what he says. He says, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And when I've prepared that place, I will come again and take you so that you may be where I am. You see what's happening here. It, it shows up more actually in, in other English translations uh, than it does in the NLT. But Jesus is almost verbatim quoting the betrothal blessing. Jesus, uh, so yes, Jesus is saying, okay, look, I'm going to be with my father and I'll come back. And, and there's that layer of meaning, but there's something more here. Jesus is deliberately using the betrothal language, using the bride and groom language to teach them more about what's going on here. Just to, uh, just to recap, this is not the first time that Jesus has been presented as symbolically the bridegroom. Okay, in fact, it's something that John has been pushing to the foreground uh, in his gospel already several times. And so John in John chapter 2 is very careful to let us know that Jesus' first miracle is turning water to wine at a wedding. Then in John chapter 3, John the Baptist, now that's a different John, uh, someone asked John the Baptist, hey, what are we going to do about this? Jesus is becoming famous and people are forgetting about you. What are we going to do? And John the Baptist says, I'm just the best man. Jesus is the bridegroom. Then we, we, we talked about this back in the spring. Uh, Jesus met a woman at a well in John chapter 4. And, and we talked about how this woman ha- had had five, men, five husbands who ran out on her. And Jesus meets her at a well, and and John is actually picking up imagery because in the Bible, when a woman meets a man at a well, they always get married. That's a pattern in the Bible. And so so, uh, John has this woman who's had five runaway husbands meet Jesus at the well. And the image is Jesus symbolically is the the perfect bridegroom because he can give her the unconditional love. that, and commitment that these five men failed to give her, and then uh, this this isn't in this isn't in John, but John also wrote a book called Revelation, and in it he talks about the end of time, and he says history ends uh, s- symbolically with the marriage supper of the Lamb. That ag- that again the the sort of consummation of history is is that Jesus is the bridegroom united with his bride. And so this is a very important image, this idea of Jesus as the bridegroom. It's a very important image in scripture, particularly for John. And so here, here we have Jesus, and John makes sure to include this. I think he's the only one who does. We have Jesus saying, we're betrothed. We have Jesus, and he's about to send his disciples um, out into the world to live 
in his absence, his physical absence. And the first thing that he does when he's sending them out into the world to live in his physical absence is he gives them uh, a framework for understanding that story. And the framework he gives them is this is, be- this is like betrothal. This whole thing that we're doing, says Jesus, is like a betrothal. Jesus is saying, listen, like a groom, like a groom, I left my father's dwelling and I came to your dwelling. Remember John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I left my father's dwelling and I came to your dwelling. I paid the bride price. He's about to pay the price on the cross, the price so that we can be together because I love you and now I'm committed to you and now I'm going away but it's not goodbye it's just see you later now I'm going away I'll be physically absent but it's so that I can prepare a place for you so as you go disciples as you go into the world and you you're now walking around without me with you it's like the waiting period between the betrothal and the wedding That's how Jesus wants them. That's how Jesus wants us to think about the Christian life as we're in the world without Jesus' physical presence with us. So, there's a whole bunch more going on in this section. Don't miss care group this week. There will be lots to talk about. But what, gives us, what Jesus gives us here, this, this bride, bridegroom, betrothal language, it gives us two invitations. And I'm going to leave you with, with these two invitations. Uh, there's, there's one for, for non-Christians and there's one for Christians. So uh, the first invitation is, and this, this is if you're not a Christian, is to drink the cup, is to drink the betrothal cup. In other words, if you're here and you're not a Christian, part of what's going on here is there's an invitation on the table for you to uh, commit yourself to Jesus. Now, the imagery gets a little bit, bit complicated. If you trace the Bible, no individual is the bride of Christ. The church collectively is the bride of Christ, actually. And it's all, it's all a metaphor. Um, but... But for all of us, there's a moment of decision. There's a moment where we make a commitment. And so, and so part of this imagery is, is Jesus saying, can we seal a betrothal here? Can we commit ourselves to each other to, to love each other and be in relationship as long as we both shall live? It's a useful image, actually, because um, when you... When you enter into an engagement and a marriage, you enter in with some question marks. If you're married, you know this. Justine and I got engaged 10 years ago last week, actually. We commemorated the occasion by spending the evening with our screaming baby. Super romantic. We got engaged 10 years ago. Now, when we got engaged, when I proposed to her, we had already... um, had some discussions. We had already nailed down the answers to a few key questions, okay? Uh, do we love each other? Okay, what, what are our values? What are our career trajectories? Where would we want to live? How many kids do we want? 
I said two, she said three, so we compromised and had three. And she was right. I'm glad we did. Um, so we, we had some answers, some basic answers nailed down. But if you've been married for any length of time, you know when you got married, you didn't know all the stuff that was going to come up. You didn't fully know each other. You didn't know what your future held. You didn't know what kind of situations you would have to uh, encounter together and deal with together. And so you enter into an engagement or a marriage uh, with, with some questions still. You have to because we don't know everything. You answer the basic questions. Who do I think this person is? Do I love them? And can I walk, uh, walk forward in life united with this person on one page? Or, okay? Uh, in step with each other. And then you commit yourselves to each other and you figure out the other questions on the way. Now, here's why this matters, because, and this, this is true for becoming a Christian, I think it's also true for baptism, actually, where we'll stand, uh, people will stand on the precipice, okay, the very edge of faith, and say, not, not quite, I have some questions. I'll commit myself uh, once, once I figure out all these questions, right? And, and time goes by. And, and you can miss out on years of relationship with Jesus because you're waiting to have all the answers. You'll never have all, you'll never have all the answers. And so the question for us is we say, am I going to commit myself to Jesus? Is do I have the basic, the basic um, questions figured out? Okay, do I believe he's who he says he is? Do I, do I love him and, and want to let him love me? And, and do I want to commit myself to walk forward with this person in a relationship? And, and all the little questions, we'll figure it out along the way. That's, that's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. And as long as I'm here, South Langley Church will be a place where we work through those questions together. We don't bury them. We don't hide them. You enter into a relationship with, with some questions sometimes, and we'll work it through together. If you're, if you're not a Christian, is today the day that you commit yourself to Jesus? If it is, uh, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Uh, we'll also have the prayer team at the front uh, at the end, and you can go pray with them if you want to talk, if you want to learn more. Is today the day that, that you drink the cup? And, and so that's the, that's the invitation for non-Christians. And then the invitation for Christians is be ready for the wedding. Be ready for the wedding. Jesus says, look, we're betrothed. The wedding's coming. His job, he's the groom, is to prepare a place for us. The bride's job is be ready for the wedding. The teaching of this passage and of Scripture in general um, and, and our belief in our denomination as Mennonite brethren is that history ends with the return of Jesus and that he's coming to be with us. We don't, we sometimes don't talk about that, partly because it's complicated, partly because there, there's maybe some 
some embarrassing things that, that go on. You know, you think there's a guy, uh, this guy, some of you may remember this, Edgar Wisenant, who published a book in 1988, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, and sold 4.5 million copies. Jesus did not return in 1988. And then in 1989, he published another one, 89 Reasons. I'm not making this up. And he did it again in 93 and 94, and we're still waiting. That's kind of embarrassing, right? There, there's certainly, there's a string of uh, artistically and theologically questionable novels and movies around the return of Jesus. Sometimes, sometimes Christians get into some uh, unhelpful speculation about the return of Jesus when there are world events. When Jesus actually said in Acts 1 verse 7, uh, he said, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They're not for you to know. They're not for you to know. And so it's actually not our job to speculate about the return of Jesus. What is our job? We're the bride. Our job is to be ready for the wedding. Our job is to live knowing that the wedding is coming. That will disrupt your value system. That will disrupt your value system. Uh, so Justine and I got engaged, and we were engaged for about seven months. And I didn't build her a house because it would fall down. We found a place to rent. And we had a wedding registry, and we figured out, you know, towels and a toaster and, and a bed and a sofa and a TV. Okay? That's kind of what we spent our time on. Here's what we did not spend time on. Refurnishing and repainting our rooms at our parents' place. Why? Because you're moving out. Like... Like that, no one, no one does that. Oh, I just got engaged. Better repaint my bedroom at my parents' place. No, why? It, it's, not going, it's not going to matter after the wedding. The church. What are we investing in that's not going to matter after the wedding? Okay, are you tracking with that? Like Jesus said, uh, Jesus said very famously, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. And so the things that, we're, that we chase after, the iPhones, the, uh, the cars, the, the likes, the vacations look good things fine not going to matter after the wedding and so the challenge for us who are who are christians is to live knowing the wedding is coming what's going to matter after the wedding and so and so we live with a different perspective with a different set of priorities than people who believe the engagement is all there is. We're investing not for now, but for eternity. I want to invite the worship team up and the prayer team 
uh, you can take your places as well. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you came once and that you're coming again. We thank you. Uh, we thank you for this promise. We thank you that you have you've betrothed yourself to us, that you've committed yourself to us, that you've paid the price so that we can be together because you love us. And so, Jesus, for those of us who who are in this room um, who have not entered into a relationship with you, we pray we pray that you would work in our hearts and draw us toward yourself. Draw us toward this, this love relationship that you've offered. And for, and for those of us who do follow you, who are, who are like, the, like the disciples, as we're going to see, who are following you now uh, with you physically absent, we pray that you would still give us eyes to, to look beyond what we see uh, in the here and now. That you would give us eyes to look to eternity and to invest in things that are going to matter after the wedding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.